This is session five. The title is God's Divided Kingdom, if you want to find that page in your notes. <clears throat> it's, it's beginning to appear that Andrew has very little control over this group. <laughs> Let's pray as we begin. Father, grateful to you for your mercy, your grace to us through your son, Jesus. We thank you that he came to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and that we have been welcomed into your presence. And that we have become, we who were not a people have become the people of God. Uh, we pray as we consider the divisions in your church in the light of the division of the kingdom in the Old Testament, that you would give us wisdom, courage, patience, and uh, that we would be faithful uh, to your call to be of one mind and one heart and see your church established as united so that uh, men would know that uh, the Father sent you, uh, sent the Son, even Jesus Christ our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen. It's, uh, it's obvious that we today live in a state of a divided church. Um, the divisions of the church have existed uh, for, the div current divisions have existed for at least five centuries. Uh, and when we begin talking about this, it's easy to become nostalgic for the pre-Reformation uh, church. And uh, I, I don't want to do that. I know that there are there were divisions, large-scale divisions within the church prior to the Reformation. There's the massive division of the Eastern and Western church in the 11th century. Uh, prior to that, you had the division after the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. You had the division of uh, Far Eastern churches, the so-called uh, Jacobite churches from uh, the churches of both uh, the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. Uh, Philip Jenkins has written a fascinating book on the lost history of Christ, uh, Christianity about those uh, those far eastern churches, which is a far richer history than we realize. So I'm not I'm not uh, I'm not idealizing the pre-Reformation church. I know that even in the Western Church, uh, there were divisions and factions. At one time, there were multiple popes. Uh, there were uh, different kinds of um, protest movements prior to the Protestant Reformation. So um, I recognize all that. The history of the church has always been messy, uh, but I think we're in a categorically different kind of situation following the Reformation than we were before. That division was much more like the division between East and West in 1054 uh, than it was uh, like, the, uh, like the smaller divisions of the Western church in the Middle Ages. Uh, what we've had for five centuries is the development of distinct, sometimes hostile um, traditions within the church to develop their own theological and doctrinal traditions, their own liturgical forms and traditions, uh, their own institutional setup, their own mission agencies and their own ways of doing mission. Um, that, and, and as I said, sometimes sometimes hostile, and even if not hostile, still there's a great deal of institutional inertia 
uh, in any institution, if you invest all the time and energy and money to establish a, uh, a, a network of churches, a mission board, uh, a, semin a, a set of seminaries, um, that's, uh, uh, that, that's uh, a, lot of, a lot of your energy goes into maintaining that. And maintaining that means maintaining it in distinction from other churches who are doing the same thing within their own setting. Uh, I know that the Lord is still alive. <laughs> the spirit is still at work in his church, even in the midst of a divided church. Uh, and uh, in some ways, the uh, last couple of centuries in particular have been the greatest his, uh, time of greatest expansion for the church, even in the midst of our divisions. But I'm convinced that uh, the state that we're in of uh, these even friendly divisions um, where we're um, more or less ignorant of what's going on in other sectors of the church. We don't function as a single body. Uh, even within one local territory, we don't function as a single body. Um, one pastor doesn't know what another pastor is doing, even though they might be have churches that are on the same block. The churches are not familiar with each other. And that's uh, at least uh, uh, often the case. <clears throat> because they're coming out of different traditions. I don't think this is what Jesus wants for his church. Jesus came to break down the dividing wall between Jew and Gentile and to form from uh, uh, people from every tribe and tongue and nation, one new humanity, united together with one mind, one heart, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, um, with uh, a uh, united at one table, uh, I think that's what the Lord has called us to, to have. That's what Jesus prayed for in his high priestly prayer. He prayed that uh, we would be one as the Father is one with the Son, that uh, the divine unity of Father and Son would be somehow exhibited in the unity of the church. And that's, um, that is not the state that we're currently in. And I think it's the state that God has called us to be. But uh, how, do we, how do we go from the current the current uh, uh, divided state of the church toward the kind of unity that Jesus prayed for. I think Kings actually gives us a great deal of insight into that uh, because it's the history, largely the history of the a history of a divided kingdom. Uh, Israel uh, as a people was divided into the Northern and Southern kingdoms with different, uh, different rulers, different liturgical life, uh, different objects of worship, even. Uh, and uh, by trying to figure out how God worked in the midst of that division and how that division, how, he, how the Lord acted to resolve that and knit together Israel and Jude again, uh, will give us insight into our situation in the modern church, I think. Uh, and uh, I, several things I want to highlight from Kings. Uh, the first is that uh, idolatry is the source of division. That's clear in Kings from First uh, Kings 11, which is, um, this is the, the last chapter in the account of Solomon's reign. Uh, and it includes this about, uh, it begins with the description of Solomon being turned away from the Lord to serve other gods by his many wives. 
But then in verse 9, it says, Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. And it commanded him concerning this thing that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done this and have not kept my covenant, my statutes, which I commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. Nevertheless, I will not do it in, the day, in your days for the sake of your father David, but I will tear it, tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear out all the kingdom, but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So the particular commandment that he's disobeyed is the commandment not to go after other gods. That's what verse 10 says. And because he doesn't keep that commandment, because he doesn't keep covenant uh, with God and doesn't, and doesn't cling to the Lord, because of that, the kingdom is torn from him. Idolatry is the source of the division of the kingdom. You could, I mean, as you, as you look at this, the account in the following chapter, what happens between uh, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, you see there are other things that are going on there. But in the background is this word of the Lord that comes to Solomon uh, and the word that's reiterated by Ahijah the prophet that uh, the, the reason, the source of the division is uh, uh, Solomon's uh, failure to cling to the Lord and to worship him. Uh, and that, con that continues to be the case throughout the history of kings. What continues the uh, separation between the two is a persistence in idolatry that both of them uh, in different ways engage in. We've talked about the uh, sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which is the sin of worshiping golden calves, that's the official, the official uh, uh, religion, uh, the established religion of the Northern Kingdom. Um, the, the Southern Kingdom maintains the temple, but uh, kings are uh, sometimes inattentive to the temple. Idolatry takes root, the, the Southern Kingdom begins to imitate the Northern Kingdom. The influence of the Northern Kingdom comes into the Southern Kingdom, as we'll see in a second. Uh, and besides, Judah continues to worship at the high places, which they've been forbidden to do. Uh, it's not the same kind of idolatry that you have in the northern kingdom, but it's still idolatry. And that continues throughout the history of Israel and Judah. Uh, and the, uh, the, uh, uh, and, and that's, that's the continuing source of the division, continuing reason, uh, the, continuing, the judgment continues, the judgment of division continues because of the continuing idolatry. And that gives us a couple of insights into um, the uh, the nature of church division and some of the uh, dangers of trying to trying to uh, address it. Uh, one thing it shows us is that a war against idolatry, though it looks divisive, is actually a war for unity. Um, and I think we can, this is an important dimension of what's going on in the Reformation era. Uh, the reformers were uh, teaching, uh, uh, they, Luther, we all know the story of Luther rediscovering Paul's doctrine of justification. But uh, there's uh, evidence in Luther's early writings that he's equally obsessed with the question of idolatry. Uh, David Yego, uh, Lutheran uh, the, theologian and historian has done a, a written a, um, an amazing article about Luther's early uh, early concern with idolatry. What he's concerned about is turning God into a means to his own satisfaction. Uh, he wants to uh, avoid 
um, worshiping a god so that he can benefit. Because if he's doing that, then he himself is the ultimate end of his worship. God is not the ultimate end. And so his, uh, his early quest is not just for a merciful God. He wants to know that he's contact, had contact with the true God and that he's not just trying to manipulate some idol into a means for his own satisfaction or to salve his own conscience or whatever. I think Calvin's opposition to idolatry is even more overt. I mean, you, you can kind of trace the history of the, the, the Calvinist Reformation, the Swiss Reformation, uh, by plotting out the incidents of uh, uh, um, uh, iconoclasm. Uh, Carlos Irie, in a book called The War Against the Idols, has, has done this. And he, every time that there's a Reformation outbreak in one of the cantons of Switzerland, it's quickly followed by a destruction of all the images and, and, uh, and idols of the Catholic Church. It's a, it's a movement of iconoclasm. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's really importantly central to Calvin's, Calvin's uh, uh, reforming program. Um, I think um, Calvin's, Calvin has a treatise when he, when he gets, in which he gives an inventory of the, of the uh, relics of Europe and part of it is satirical. He's trying to show how idiotic relic veneration was. Uh, he says things like there, there, there are enough fragments of the true cross to build Noah's Ark uh, scattered around Europe. Every, every monastery has a fragment of the true cross. Can't all be true because there's too much wood. Um, but that's not the main point of that treatise. The main point of the treatise is that people are trying to find contact with God through these, through these relics and icons uh, and that's not where God is. God comes to his people through his word. He comes to his people at his table. He comes to people, his people in the water of baptism. That's where he's promised to be. Uh, and if you want to find God, that's where you got to go. Uh, you don't go after these other, these other uh, pretend uh, sacraments, as it were. Uh, so making war against the idols is a way of redirecting people back to the word and uh, table and word and sacraments, the place where God is promised to be. Um, and all of that, the point, I'm, uh, point I want to get to is that all of that attack on idolatry is in service to a reunion of the church, a, a, a faithful union of the church. It's not intended to be divisive. Uh, a war against idols is a pursuit of unity because you can't have unity. You can't have true godly unity on the basis of idolatry. So um, that, again, that, that doesn't look, the reformers don't look like they're pursuing unity and Catholicity. But insofar as they're opposing idols, I think they are, and that we should take a lesson from that. And uh, battling against the idols of our own time is not just a, uh, is, is, it might look divisive, and it might be divisive in some ways in the, in the short term. In the long term, it is, that is the program for uh, the unity of the church. And we continue in division because we continue to nurture our idols. The other thing that this uh, alerts us to is the danger of idolatrous ecumenism, uh, idolatrous pursuit of unity. And we actually have an example of that in Kings. Uh, in the history of the Amrite dynasty, uh, the Amrite dynasty, of course, folk, as I mentioned, focuses on Ahab. Uh, he's the most prominent king in the Amrite dynasty. You have to read, kind of read between the lines, but it seems like it's uh, it's implied in Kings that Ahab has a deliberate strategy 
of trying to reunite the kingdom of Ju kingdoms of Judah and Israel under an Amrite king, not a Davidic king, or maybe a, a, a descendant of the union of the Amrite and Davidic dynasties, uh, and unite them under the, with the worship of Baal. Uh, and there are a couple of things that, that, uh, that hint at this. The first is that Ahab allies with Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, in a couple of battles. But it's Ahab who's in the, who's in the lead. He's the, one who's, he's, the one who, he's, he's the one who's making war, and he gets Jehoshaphat to join with him. And you, you know, Ahab has a kind of un, unified front. You've got Israel and Judah fighting together. Isn't this great? Brothers fighting together. But they're fighting Ahab's battles. Uh, they're fighting the battles of the idolater, and Jehoshaphat, although he's basically a faithful king, is uh, is condemned for his alliances with Ahab and with Ahab's sons because he fights alongside them. He shouldn't be. He shouldn't fight their wars. Uh, those are the, those are the wars of the idolaters. He shouldn't be there. And besides that, you have the the marital union of the Davidic and the Amri dynasty. I mentioned this earlier, I think, when I was talking about Jehu. Uh, uh, Jehoshaphat's son marries Ahab's daughter. So the descendants of Ahab's, uh, of that union are both Amrides and Davidic uh, descendants. You have the embodiment of the reunion right there, but it's a compromise union. It's a compromise reunion because it's a, an attempt to marry together uh, faithful worship of Yahweh with worship of Baal, and that's just, that's not going to work. And you have this, uh, this very interesting thing at the center of kings, where it's really hard to tell which king you're talking about. You have the names, uh, same names of kings in the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. You have an Ahaziah in the northern kingdom, you have an Ahaziah in the southern kingdom, you have a Joash in the northern kingdom, you have a Joash in the southern kingdom. And all the names get entangled, and it's hard to keep track of which king you're talking about. But that, that name confusion is a sign of the confusion of the two kingdoms and the confusion of the two dynasties. And that means when, as I mentioned earlier, when Jehu comes to take vengeance against the house of Ahab, it encompasses much of the house of David because the house of David is part of the house of Ahab. So when judgment falls, if you're, if you're consorting with idolaters <laughs> and judgment falls on the idolaters, then you shouldn't complain if you get caught up in the judgment. I mean, that's that's what's happening to Jehoshaphat and his descendants. They're, they've, um, they've made alliances. They've tried. They've, uh, they've uh, attempted a an idolatrous reunion of Israel and Judah, uh, and that is that is disastrous. It's gonna it's gonna lead to the destruction of both dynasties. It doesn't, but it almost does. It destroys the Amri dynasty, and it almost destroys the Davidic dynasty. And it's because Ahab has been pursuing this uh, effort to reunite uh, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, in under uh, under an, uh, under an idol and reunite on idolatrous premises. So how should we how should we pursue this and how should we think about the situation that we're in? What what light does um, what other light does kings shed on? One of the things again is that it shows that idolatry is the source. So we must make war against idols and be suspicious and and opposed to any effort to reunite the church on the basis of any kind of compromise of truth. Um, that's, that's a complicated, that can, can be a complicated kind of decision to make. When are you compromising truth and when are you coming to a one mind about truth? Uh, those aren't the same thing, but we need to be suspicious of any efforts to reunite on the basis of some kind of 
compromised compromise of the truth of God. It, uh, but the, uh, the, another thing that uh, Kings uh, alerts us to is the Lord's continuing regard for both Israel and Judah. We know that, he's, we know that he regards Judah as his people. That's the Davidic line. That's where the temple is. Uh, that's you know that's where all the, the the hero kings are. We know that that's we know that the Lord is paying attention to them and that He regards them as His people. What's surprising is that as we get to the end of Kings, uh, rather get to the end of the Southern Kingdom. Oh, sorry, start again. What's surprising is that when we get to the end of the history of the Northern Kingdom of Israel, the kingdom that is founded on worship of golden calves. The kingdom that has worshipped Baals, the kingdom that Ahab ruled with his 400 false prophets uh, advising him, that kingdom is still the people of God. Uh, and this comes out in a couple of places late in the book of Kings that are uh, quite remarkable passages. Uh, given all the, uh, uh, all the history of the northern kingdom, and then suddenly we have this. Uh, and we're kind of shocked to realize that, yeah, the Lord still loves these people. He still loves Israel. Uh, 2 Kings 13. This is just after the record of uh, Elisha's death. Verse 22, it says, Hazael, king of Aram, had oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them, to Israel, and had compassion on them and turned to them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he would not destroy them or cast them from his presence until now. Again, this is the people who have been worshiping at Dan and Bethel, worshiping golden calves for, uh, by this time, it's been a couple of centuries, century and a half, and they're still God's covenant people. And he remembered, because he's committed to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and they are the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he is compassionate to them, and he won't destroy them. He holds back because they're still his people. A couple chapters later, in the, actually the very next chapter in, in 2 Kings 14, I read the little account of uh, Jonah's prophecy in verses 23 through 25, but I didn't continue on because I uh, wanted to reserve it for this uh, reserve the punchline for this lecture. Uh, uh, Jonah speaks this prophecy, uh, it, and uh, the borders of Israel are extended. The Lord, the Lord gives them territory back, and that fulfills the prophecy of Jonah. But why does the Lord do that? Verse 26 says, the Lord saw the affliction of Israel, which is very bitter, for there was neither bond nor free, nor was there any help for Israel. And the Lord did not say that he would blot out the name, their name from heaven, but he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. Jeroboam, the son of Joash, is Jeroboam II. Uh, and uh, Jeroboam II is not a faithful uh, worshiper of Yahweh. He is another idolater who continues in the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. We've been, just been told that in verse 24. But now the Lord sees their affliction. This is like the affliction, this is like uh, the beginning of the Exodus story. <laughs> The Lord sees the affliction of Israel in Egypt, and he has compassion on them, and he delivers them. He sees the affliction of idolatrous Israel, 
and he has compassion. It's a very great affliction. And so he sends Jeroboam to recover territory and to release them from some of their pressure, some of their oppression. Uh, that's a, an amazing, an amazing, those are amazing passages that after all that Israel and Judah have done, uh, Israel has done, the Northern Kingdom has done, the Lord still regards them as his people. And that's that should be evident really from the whole narrative of Kings. Those passages kind of jump out at us. But the whole narrative of Kings, especially in the central section, is all about the Lord sending his prophets to, to Israel, to the Northern Kingdom. He keeps sending them. He sends Elijah and then Elisha and their sons of the prophets. And he has uh, other individual prophets who come to the northern kingdom, some of the some of the writing prophets in the in the uh, in the minor prophets are prophets who are writing to the northern kingdom. God keeps speaking to His people, even after generations of idolatry. He keeps speaking to them, sending prophets, calling them to repentance, and He still has compassion on them in their affliction, and He still regards them as as His covenant people. That, uh, in, a, in an important way, that doesn't reassure us. In some ways, that makes the problem of the division of the North and, and Southern Kingdom even more uh, painful. I mean, it, it'd be really easy for the people in the South, and I'm sure many of them did say, we've got the temple, we've got the Davidic kingdom, we've got the Davidic, the Davidic dynasty. Those people up north, they used to be God's people. They used to be part of Israel. They used to be God's covenant people, but they aren't anymore. We've got the goods. We've got, we've got the temple. We've got David, uh, David's house. Um, we've got the capital city that David established. The division uh, is not really a division of the kingdom of Israel. The division is between the true Israel, which is Judah, and something else that's not Israel at all, which is the Northern Kingdom. It'd be easy for people in Judah to think that way. Uh, and that's the way that uh, we often think about divisions within the church. We think about divisions of the church and not really divisions within the church, but divisions between the true church, the real church, and something that's not church. And you can see that on large scale, you know, we get division between the world, Protestant world and Catholics and Protestants, some Protestants will say, well, that's not really a division in the church because the Catholic Catholics aren't part of the church. That's not church. So the, 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 the boundary between us is not a boundary that lies in the center of the church. It's a boundary at the edge of the church. And we're on the inside and they're on the outside. Um, and you can, I mean, people do this on much smaller scale. You have, <laughs> you have divisions within some micro denomination you have, as a, as a friend once said, a, a tempest in a thimble. It's not even big enough to be a tempest in a teapot. You have a tempest in a thimble, and the the one side, actually probably both sides, are thinking we're the true maintainers of the of the faith, and those people who left us aren't part of the church at all. We're the true church. They're not church. Uh, that's Kings doesn't allow us to say that. Kings is, Kings forces us to see the genuine horror, and I, I don't use that lightly, the genuine horror 
of a divided people of God. It's the, 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 the boundary is not uh, between the people of God and something else. It's a boundary, it's a line that runs through the people of God themselves. And I think that's the kind of division that we're in. Certainly there are people who claim to be Christians that are outside, okay? I'm not denying that. Are there, there are churches that claim to be Christian churches that are not no longer Christian churches. I, I'm not saying that that's impossible. But I'm saying that we, we often jump to that conclusion that because they don't agree with us, because they're outside our particular tradition, they are not church. And I, I think uh, Kings makes, gives us the much more disturbing uh, possibility and reality that there are divisions that, are, that lie, that fractures within the church itself. But I think that Kings is also, it doesn't give us the full story of the reunion of Israel and Judah, but I think it gives us uh, some of the elements of the Lord's response to that division of Israel and Judah. And it prepares us for what I think is the eventual, what is the eventual reunion that takes place uh, at the time of the exile and through, through the course of the exile. So how does, how does God respond to, how, how does God work within this divided church. Uh, one of the things he does, uh, somewhat paradoxically, one of the things he does is to create a new division. You've got the, uh, the northern kingdom of Israel, the southern kingdom of Judah, two, two big entities, and he sends prophets into the northern kingdom to carve out a little, uh, a little section of the kingdom of Israel that, is, uh, that maintains the true faith, that worships the true God. And I'm talking about the ministry of Elijah and Elisha and the company, the company of the prophets. And we know from those stories, specifically the stories about Elisha, that uh, it's not just the, the prophets who are part of these companies of prophets, but there are there are there are Israelites, people who live in the in the northern kingdom, who are attached to the prophets. Uh, the uh, uh, the woman who provides a home for uh, the upper room for Elisha. Uh, is somebody, she's not a prophet or a prophetess, but she's attached to the prophets. And when she uh, <clears throat> seems to be, there's, it's implied that when she wants to go and worship, she goes to find the prophet. She goes to the, she doesn't go, certainly doesn't go to the, you know, the golden calf shrine that's nearby. She goes to the community where the community of prophets is, is meeting, and that's where she worships God. So th there's this movement within the Northern Kingdom that actually divides the Northern Kingdom in two. You've got the big division between North and South and God's act is to uh, fracture the Northern Kingdom. And that's actually, that's very much what Jesus does too, right? Uh, when Jesus comes, he comes bearing a sword as he says, uh, and he comes to divide uh, father from son, mother from daughter, mother-in-law from daughter-in-law and so on. Uh, members, The members of your your enemies will be members of your own house. Jesus comes to divide and he comes into a, an Israel and, and creates a division by gathering together a set of disciples that follow him. And that's what, that's what the prophets are doing. Uh, it's, important, it's important to see a, a couple of qualifications for that. I think that the correlation in the modern world, world would be various kinds of renewal movements, the evangelical movement in, in uh, uh, in the last couple of centuries has been that. Uh, the various forms of the ev evangelical movement has been that kind of movement 
the Methodists were that kind of movement within the Church of England um, back in the 18th century. Uh, you have movements that the Lord, that the Lord uh, provokes that, uh, that actually create some kind of division uh, that within an already divided church. And that, that division is a part of the Lord's process of renewal and reunion, uh, even though it's initially uh, a divisive movement. But I think it's important to see a, 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 see a couple of qualifications. Uh, first of all, uh, to pick up on what I was saying earlier, those movements are not true church movements uh, surrounded by non-church. Okay, when the Methodists come and start to renew within the Church Church of England, uh, I, I don't know enough about Methodist history to know if they were thinking in terms of we're the true church and the Anglicans who don't join us are outside the members of the Church of England who don't join us are out, outside the church. If they did, they shouldn't have. It's a renewal movement, but uh, God God never gives up on the mainstream of Israel, even though. You have these pockets of faithfulness, the sons of the prophets and those who attach to them. You have those pockets scattered through the northern kingdom, but the Lord never gives up on the kingdom as a whole. Um, and I would say that for that's that's true of uh, renewal movements in the church too. So you have renewal movements that might might split the church and might become kind of institutionally separate, but that doesn't mean that God has given up His love and His care for the wider church that's uh, uh, out of which these movements uh, are growing. Uh, so uh, it, it's a, there's a kind of church within a church. I mean, that is, that's part of the phenomenon I'm talking about, but that shouldn't be seen as an exclusive kind of uh, a separation from, from the mainstream of the church. The other thing, uh, sometimes those kind of movements are thought of as a, a remnant. You have the, you have the remnant you know, you've got, a, you've got a church that's drifting, a church that's full of false teaching, a church that's no longer faithful, and you have renewal movements that are the remnant of the true believers. Uh, and I think there's, that makes, it makes sense to talk about it that way, but I think that uh, in, in the Bible, the remnant, the term remnant actually applies to something different. Those, those, those uh, renewal movements in the Northern Kingdom are never called re the remnant. Those are movements uh, within, within the Northern Kingdom that prepare for a future remnant, but the remnant is always the church, the, the survivors after some catastrophe or judgment. The remnant, the remnant is the, are, the, are the brands that are plucked from the burning, okay? So the remnant is the group that comes out of exile or that is faithful through the exile, uh, but they're the people who have survived. That's the, that's the community, community of believers that it survives when uh, the Lord brings judgment against the nation. Um, what's happening with Elijah and Elisha is that they are, uh, they're forming these smaller communities within Israel that are going to be the, the core and the preparation for faithful groups that will survive and flourish during the course of the exile and will be the core of those who return from exile and renew Israel in the post-exilic era. And that that those latter groups are called the remnant. It's maybe maybe a technical point, but I think it's uh, I think that's the way that the, the language of remnant is used in the Old Testament. Uh, but uh, the main the main point I want to make is that these renewal movements are not uh, at the expense of the nation as a whole. Uh, Israel is still 
God's covenant people, Israel is still the object of the Lord's compassion, even though the truly faithful ones are those within those renewal movements. Uh, I'd say that uh, those renewal movements are effective to this extent, I think before the end of the uh, end of the story of Kings, there is a there are forms of reunion in the latter part of uh, of Kings and Chronicles. After the Northern Kingdom falls, so the political entity of the Northern Kingdom falls to the Assyrians. That's recorded in Second Kings seventeen. After the Northern Kingdom falls, the Southern Kings, the Davidic Kings, begin to make overtures to those who are in the Northern Kingdom, those who are the, the, uh, the, the, these are the remnant. These are the people who have survived the fall of Assyria, uh, a fall to Assyria, the fall of Samaria. Uh, these are the people who are the heirs of the movement that was started by Elijah and Elisha. Uh, and they are brought into the, uh, maybe not politically, but they're brought into the company of the worshipers of Yahweh in the Southern Kingdom. Uh, we see this in, uh, I'll look at Chronicles first, the, the, uh, the account of Hezekiah's, uh, Hezekiah's Passover in Chronicles. Let me make sure I'm finding, my, finding the right page of my notes here. Now, 2 Chronicles 30, the, the Passover of Hezekiah is not given uh, attention in Kings, but it is given a great deal of attention in Chronicles. Uh, the Second Chronicles 30, um, um, let, me, let me just start at the beginning of the chapter and I'll pick up some of the things I want to highlight. Hezekiah sent to, well, the first verse tells us, Hezekiah sent to all Israel and Judah and wrote letters to Ephraim and Manasseh. Ephraim and Manasseh are the tribes of the Northern Kingdom. Ephraim is the, sometimes the name of the Northern Kingdom. And Hezekiah is sending letters to them that they should come to the house of the Lord at Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover uh, to the Lord their God. Notice how the premise that Hezekiah is using. Hezekiah's premise is that the people who are in the northern kingdom are welcome in Jerusalem, welcome to the Passover. The Passover is open only to the people of Israel. Uh, uh, that's uh, uh, only the circumcised are allowed at Passover. But Hezekiah is assuming that all these people should be welcome. So the king and the princes and the assembly in Jerusalem had decided to celebrate the Passover in the second month, since they could not celebrate it at that time, uh, at the first month, because uh, the priests had not consecrated themselves. Now, verse 4, thus the thing was right in the sight of the king and all the assembly. So they established a decree to circulate a proclamation throughout all Israel from Beersheba, Beersheba, where's Beersheba? Beersheba is the southern, the southernmost city of Judah, the southern kingdom. Uh, circulate a proclamation from Beersheba to Dan. That's the northernmost territory of the northern kingdom. They're circulating a proclamation about this Passover over greater Israel. This is the Israel that um, existed in the time of David and Solomon. And Hezekiah is inviting people from all over to join in, to come to Jerusalem and celebrate the Passover, for they had not celebrated in great numbers as it had been prescribed. The couriers went throughout all Israel and Judah with the letters from the hand of the king and the princes, even according to the command of the king, saying, O sons of Israel, return to the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
that he may return to those who have escaped and are left from the hand of the, king of the kings of Assyria. Do not be like your fathers and your brothers who are unfaithful to the Lord, God of their fathers, so he made them a horror, as you see. Do not stiffen your neck. Uh, verse 10, so the couriers pass from city to city throughout the country of Ephraim and Manasseh. They're going from town to town, as far as Zebulun, the north, far north. Uh, but they laugh them to scorn and mock them. So a lot of the people in the north don't want to have anything to do with this invitation to the Passover. Nevertheless, well, verse 11, some men of Asher, Manasseh, Zebulun humbled themselves and came to Jerusalem. So you have people from the north, not everyone, but you have now you have a remnant, those who have survived the, the judgment, who remained faithful. Probably you could trace these people from these men from Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun back to the movement that was started by Elijah and Elisha and the sons of the prophets. And they they jump at the chance to go worship in Jerusalem. Uh, they jump at the chance to be part of the liturgical community that's centered in at the temple and is uh, hosted by the king of uh, king of Judah. Uh, Hezekiah is uniting the kingdom. He's not uniting it. He's not uniting everyone. He doesn't rule everyone. He's not uniting the people politically. The people that live in the territories of Asher, Manasseh, and Zebulun don't become part of Judah. They're still being ruled by the Assyrians at this point. But they are part of the liturgical community, the worshiping community that's gathering together in Jerusalem for Passover. So even before the exile begins, we have the Lord uh, achieving a kind of unity, the most important kind of unity, which is not the political unity of the people, but the unity of people in the worship of God. Um, we have a, a similar kind of thing. I won't spend as much time on this, but I want to highlight this in uh, Kings. In 2 Kings 23, this is during the reign of Josiah. beginning in verse 15. This is Josiah's uh, reforming movement. He's breaking down the idols. He's closing down the high places. And he does not stop at the border of Judah. Verse 15. The altar that was in Bethel and the high place which Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, had made Israel sin, which, who made Israel sin, had made, even the altar in that high place, he broke down. So this is one of the main shrines for golden calf worship that Jeroboam set up. And Josiah is destroying that, demolishing its stones, grinding them to dust. Uh, he sees the graves uh, of the man of God from Judah and the old prophet there, and he leaves them. And then verse 19, Josiah also removed from the houses of the high places, which were in the cities of Samaria, which the kings of Israel had made to provoke the Lord, provoking the Lord. He did to it as just as he did to Bethel. And all the priests, the high places who were there, he slaughtered on the altars and burned human bones on them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Okay. Uh, Josiah's uh, liturgical reform, his reform of worship, his war against the idols, extends into the northern kingdom. And so this purging of the idols encompasses, again, territory that goes beyond the uh, territory of the, of the kings of Judah. So even before the exile, we have a kind of reunion of Israel and Judah. Uh, I think the real reunion of Israel and Judah takes place during and beyond the exile. Um, the, uh, Judah, Judah and Israel remain divided until the stick of Judah is tied together with the stick of Israel 
That's the language of Ezekiel 37. The stick of Judah and the stick of Israel are tied together and they're reunited in the grave of exile. So uh, I said it was kind of paradoxical for the Lord to start uh, renewing his people and reuniting his people by first dividing them. Perhaps even more paradoxical to reunite them by sending them into a, the grave. But that's what he does. Uh, the people of God for several centuries was Israel and Judah, two kingdoms. That Israel died in exile. And the Israel that comes up out from exile is no longer divided between Israel and Judah. You still have tribal identities. But when they come up out of exile, they're all Jews. That, that's just, they have just that one designation, or they're all Israel. You don't have Judah and Israel as two different entities in the post-exilic period, because they've gone into the grave, they've gone into exile, and in exile, they've been, there's been a crucible uh, that's, that's uh, melted down those divisions and brought them out. Uh, Jew is a, is a contraction of uh, Judahite. Uh, that is, everyone who comes out of exile is, honor, is, is uh, given the honor of being a, a part of the tribe of Judah, that is to say the royal tribe. Uh, the Israel that comes up out of exile is, a, is, is a, an Israel made up of kings. That's, that's what the name Jew or Judahite implies. But that, that reunion takes place in exile. And again, I think uh, I want to I apply that too to our, I started out talking about the divisions of the church, and I want to apply that kind of logic. What's going to reunite the church uh, that's been divided within the Western church for these 500 years? Uh, the globally, I mean, we look at the whole global church, we've had uh, the big division between East and West is a, a, thousand, uh, a thousand years. Um, what's, gonna, what's going to bring the, that church back together? Uh, I think they're all war, warring against the idols. Uh, it's um, renewal movements that the Lord uses to uh, call his people back to himself. Ultimately, uh, the divided church has to die as the divided kingdom has to die. And the Lord is going to send us all together into exile and we'll be reunited in exile. He's going to bring, uh, he's going to forge us back together not in, into something new. I don't think what, what comes out of exile is not, uh, doesn't, doesn't have direct continuity with either Israel or Judah. It's something different. And when the church comes out of the crucible, whatever crucible the Lord is, is uh, uh, going to use to unite us, it's going to be different from anything that went before, but it is going to be united in a way that it hasn't been. Uh, that, I think that's the hope we have. We, the hope we have is uh, for, it's hope beyond resurrection. We hope in a God who is faithful to death and who is then again faithful beyond death. And that's true not only for our own lives, but also for the unity of the church. Thanks very much. That's my favorite session so far. Um, I just find that so provocative. Could you, I read an article by you, which I think years ago, before you probably did that conference on Protestantism, where you talked about being too Catholic to be Catholic. And I, I think it sounds to me like there's something quite very closely related in what you were just saying, in the sense of in the, in the divided kingdom we're still in, before the crucible of death and resurrection beyond it into unity, 
Could you talk a little bit about how those of us who, all of us, who still have convictions which are pretty deep theologically, live with those convictions in without calling everybody on the other side idolaters and without regarding them as not part of the church, but nevertheless saying, I'm here I stand and I can do no other, or at least in some version of it. Right. Could right. you just talk a moment about that? Because I think you're, you've really helped me on that, and I thought it would just be good to share with others. And Yeah, there, there's several different things I'd, I'd want to say to that. that. You mentioned the article, Too Catholic to be Catholic, and my point there uh, is has to do with um, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I, appreciate, I appreciate Catholic theologians a lot, many Catholic theologians, not all of them, but I appreciate uh, Catholic theologians a lot. I, I admire certain things about the Catholic Church. Um, I've been asked at times, why don't you just become Catholic? Um, part of it is theological conviction. Part of it is my mother would roll over in her grave, which I think is a genuine theological objection but it's it's all I, I'm and I'm being serious about that. I think that's a uh, that's a real thing. That's uh, I'm I, I don't I'm not being facetious at all about that. But it's also the case that if I became Catholic or if I converted to Orthodoxy, uh, how would I regard? Um, I'll pick you, pick on you, Andrew. How would I have to regard you? You would now be a separated brother. I couldn't just. Talk, talk about you as a brother without qualification, because now as a Catholic, I have to have this, I have to have this other designation for you. I can't treat you as just another fellow believer. I think about what do I think about uh, if 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 I become convinced, uh, if I become Catholic, then what am I thinking about my own ministry? I've been an ordained minister since the early '90s. I don't know how many people I baptized. Um, by Catholic reckoning, I'm not ordained. Um, none of those baptisms are, well, baptisms might be valid because you don't have to be ordained to be. But I've, I've, I've uh, presided at countless celebrations of the Lord's Supper, uh, none of which are valid. The Lord's Supper did not happen at any of those. None of those were the Eucharist because I'm not ordained. There was not a there was not an ordained person there. So I have to I have to kind of reject my entire ministry and say that that's all that's all um, uh, deeply flawed, false. Uh, and uh, I want to as I want to be Catholic enough to say Andrew Wilson is just my brother. <laughs> uh, I want to say be Catholic enough to say to my my Catholic friends. You are just my brother. I get rid of the separated part. Yeah, we, we've got these institutional separations, but yes, you're just my brother. And when a faithful uh, group of Baptists or a faithful group of Methodists is gathering at the Lord's table, Jesus is there, and they are really celebrating the Eucharist, and their uh, their ministries are just as valid as the ministry of any other church. I think you, to become Catholic, I would have to restrict the scope of my uh, my Catholicity. Um, so that's that was the that was the argument of that of that article, and that uh, one of the strong reasons why I, uh, I I've never really been tempted to become Catholic for the reasons that you mentioned. I still have strong um, uh, theological, uh, biblical grounds for objecting to certain Catholic practices and doctrines, uh, but then I think that uh, that um, uh, also the the kind of contraction of my 
um, I don't want to say a contraction of affection. I don't want to say exactly that, but a contraction of my, my sense of the church. I, I would see it as a contraction, not an expansion. Uh, thank you so much for your teaching, which I really, I want to honor it by maybe interrogating it a little bit. And I, because I want to be brief, it might sound a little bit stark, but um, what I'm struggling with a little bit is uh, the, the New Testament makes it clear that the key marker for being part of the people of God is not ethnicity, it's faith in Jesus, the uniqueness of Christ our Savior, justification by faith. And the New Testament model for addressing disunity, it appears to be more Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you are not children of Abraham. Uh, the Apostle Paul saying, if someone preaches another gospel, even if they call themselves Christians, let them be eternally anathema. Uh, Paul carrying on in the same letter of Galatians to say a Gentile is more Jewish than a Jew who rejects Jesus uh, and ultimately Paul uh, Jesus speaking through John in Revelation 2 and 3 where twice he says they consider themselves to be Jews but they're not they're a synagogue of Satan that feels to me to be a fundamentally different model for how we're to address people who would call themselves Christians but have strayed from Jesus Christ and faith in his blood as our only means of salvation. I'm just trying to square those two things. Yeah, thanks. I, I, I have to say, first of all, I'm really glad to see my interrogator for the first time. I'm, <laughs> I'm glad your face got up on the screen. Now I, now I know who's talking to me. Um, uh, first of all, on the, on the first point that you made, uh, I, think, I think the difference is not as dramatic as you suggested. I don't think ethnicity was ever the, the mark of uh, conclusion of the people of God. I mean, I, you can go back to uh, Abraham. Um, circumcision is the physical mark of inclusion in Israel. And Abraham it, it circumcises all the men of his house uh, in, in Genesis 17 at the time when he has precisely one son. But he has 318 fighting men who are not his blood descendants have no relation to him probably uh, uh many of them were probably egyptians um so right from the beginning you have an israel that's mixed ethnicity mixed race uh, mixed race israel that's true when israel comes up out of egypt they have a lot of it's a mixed multitude that comes out of egypt there are a lot of egyptians with them so i, I don't think i don't think that ethnic issue is really the really the key issue uh your other points i think are are, are uh, important I would put those under the heading of what I said about a war against the idols and a war against, uh, against falsehood. Um, that is part of the pursuit of unity. Um, rejecting the synagogues of Satan who have departed from the faith, uh, uh, standing in opposition to them, battling them, is part of the pursuit of unity. So I, I, that's, I think that's a continuity between the old and the new. I don't see I don't see the difference that I don't see the difference as starkly as you suggested, and I think that I guess the the practical question would be something like, okay, so you got Catholics, Catholics are preaching a false gospel, shouldn't we condemn them with the same uh, severity that Paul condemned the Galatians? I mean, that, I, I, I'm assuming that that's the kind of argument that you that you're um, not maybe not that you're that you're defending, but that's the kind of argument that you're alluding to. Um, and a part of my answer to that would be to ask, and I'm not, I'm not trying to play around with that question. 
uh, but I want to ask the question, what is in fact the gospel message? And I think the gospel message as the New Testament presents it is the narrative of Jesus as the, as the Messiah of Israel who's died and cruci uh, who's crucified and risen and now reigns as king. That's, that is the good news. Uh, when Paul talks about justification by faith in Romans and Galatians, he's talking about uh, important, um, those, those are central affirmations about that, the, the reception of the gospel, you could say. But the gospel as an announcement, as a proclamation, is the royal proclamation that Jesus, the son of David, is now king. Uh, and that's a proclamation that Catholics accept and proclaim. It, that narrative is something that they accept. Um, so I, I don't think that, I, I wouldn't say that the, uh, that the Catholic Church has rejected the gospel. I would say that the Catholic Church in its official teaching, which, uh, you know, uh, Trent, the, the Council of Trent uh, rejected the Reformation teaching on justification. Uh, in recent decades, Catholic, many Catholic commentators, New Testament scholars and theologians have begun to uh, kind of qualify Trent and begun to come, they've come closer to seeing Protestant readings of, of Paul as being accurate readings of Paul. Um, but uh, 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 Trent still stands as, a, as the dogmatic statement about justification. So the, I think there's a, Catholics are kind of in a bind there because they have to affirm Trent because it's a dogma. It, it's, uh, it's irreformable dogma of the Catholic church. And yet uh, many of the, uh, uh, many biblical scholars within the Catholic church would say things very similar to what Protestants say about Paul's doctrine of justification. So, um, so I think the I think the, the the official teaching the official teaching of the Catholic Church, as stated by Trent, I think is wrong. It's an error, but I think that's different from saying that they have abandoned the gospel. I think they're it, that it's I don't I'm not trying to minimize that issue. I think it's a major it's a major flaw in Catholic teaching, but I think that falls short of saying that they've abandoned the gospel because of the way I see the New Testament. Um, the way the New Testament talks about the gospel is this is this announcement about Jesus. I hope that uh, at least addresses that's some a, of your that's questions. It's a, a hugely help. You can I, I can see Phil and you, and he's he's nodding sagely. Um, I, I know that was we only got two questions in there, and they took ten minutes, but I thought they were well. I hope mine was, but Phil's was a very good question, and I trust it was one probably many of us share, and that was a fantastic clarifying answer. May, we may not agree with it all, but I thought that was really well handled. So thank you, Peter. We